0: This is Blaise Brosnan, your host for this episode of MIR Meets. Today we'll be speaking to Freddie DeBoer. Freddie DeBoer is a socialist commentator who writes from a heterodox perspective on a wide range of topics, but really some of the most important ones I think are American meritocracy, the future of the left in the Western world, uh, Marxism, and identity politics in America. I think DeBoer is one of the most compelling advocates for an older form of democratic socialism, that is skeptical of identity politics and pr- pretty aggressively civil libertarian. So, I mean, I hope that's the correct characterization. You want to add anything? You know? No, I uh,
1: I like that. that. That sounds right to me.
0: So the first question I wanted to ask, what do you think about the direction of the American left in the near future? So just what, what are your thoughts? Like just a kind of brief roadmap.
1: Okay, so... Uh... Boy, that's a, that's a complex question. So I think that first we have to acknowledge progress. And I think that, um, when you're someone who's cranky, like I am, or, uh, grumpy, uh, like I am frequently, um, I think that it is easy to, uh, sort of look at the things that have happened, uh, recently and not sort of acknowledge that there really has been a genuine change in, um, the way that, you know, capitalist, alternative politics, socialist politics, left politics, activist politics are discussed, but, um, It's important to say, like, when I started writing um, uh, for a public audience in, like, 2008, everybody was a third way clintonite neoliberal kind of a person i mean there were um, obviously there were left voices but they were very much sort of marginalized and pushed out of the mainstream and like the most sort of radical people that you encountered in big deal publications were sort of left liberals who you know um still sort of believed in a capitalist framework and in a um uh, sort of business as usual politics. Um there's been a dramatic change in sort of what is uh discussable uh in the na- in the national public conversation. Also, there has been substantive uh policy victories. I mean it's important to remember that in the mid 90s gay marriage polled in the like 20 percentile, you know, 20th percentile or 20% of people um supported it. Um uh we do have I mean look you can look at like the The sort of the degree of commitment of American um, subsidizing of public goods Um, and despite the fact that it often seems like movement conservatism has been having this sort of uh, unbreakable chokehold on American politics the government is uh, in terms of what it is outlaying in terms of what it's giving its people is doing more than it ever has. Right. Um, Obamacare clearly is a um, deeply flawed um, thing, uh, but it did expand Medicaid significantly in places where that mattered. Uh, It did um, provide a rule against uh, uh, preventing people from getting health insurance because of preexisting conditions. Um, And, you know, The Bernie campaigns failed, and I think that that's really important that we be careful about when we talk about, but uh, they did uh, galvanize a lot of people. They demonstrated intense sort of unhappiness with where we are, which could potentially be uh, fruitful for the future. Um, The bad part is that um, we don't have a plan. There does not appear to me to be a very coherent sense of okay, where we are right now is this. This is the kind of movement that we are. Um, our goals are this, and our strategy is this. Right, right. Um, there's a lot of heat, um, but not a lot of light, and. Um, I think that we have to call sort of consider the 2016 to 2021, the the previous five years to be quite disappointing in the sense that um, many people thought that the Bernie campaign would um, coalesce into a sort of broad social democratic movement. And that really hasn't happened. Um, uh, Nobody knows what the organization would look like. Nobody is sure quite how uh, much of this should be sort of just about sort of pulling the Democrats left. Um, DSA is probably the thing that has, um, Gotten the most press, and they did get, you know, they're like a hundred thousand member strong organization now. But, um, you know, I think the NRA has like three million members, right? So we, we should keep these in perspective. So, um, acknowledged, I acknowledge progress. I also think that there is a fundamental, you know, there's just a lot of incoherence in what people are asking for and the, the tools that they would attempt to apply to get those things that they're asking for.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really, really interesting uh, characterization. You know, on the one hand, there's obviously been a lot of progress. People's opinion, look, again, you mentioned public opinion polling, even on something, you know, an issue we regard as, you know, pretty easy issue like interracial merit was not, even, you know, most people were against it as recently as the early 90s. So we've made Mm -hmm. a massive amount of progress. And that means that there's a lot more on economic and social issues the left can do. What I do think has happened on the left, and where I really agree with you, but I think it may—I might think it's a more fundamental problem than you do. Essentially, is that I really see, you know, the kind of social democratic left as you know the, the, that emerged, you know, roughly between say World War One and the and the seventies. The you know, that really was kind of had its heyday then. Um, I see basically a bunch of factors: um, the the end of the Cold War, obviously the rise across the globe of movements that focus on culture and identity as opposed to you know this kind of uh you know almost kind of binary issues like you know uh western capitalism versus you know third worldism workers versus uh you know capitalists and such you see a lot of gray areas been going on pretty much ever since uh towards the end of the cold war and so i think that means i guess what i would call for you know there's some leftists who say you know you know, against doomers who essentially say, well, you know, the window for socialism is passed, third-way type politics, you know, is pretty much the only way the left can go. And then, um, you know, people who are more optimistic who say, well, look, you know, maybe the uh, 90s neoliberal kind of era is dead. What I would urge is kind of ambiguity. Like, on the one hand, I don't think the issues we're dealing with right now, you know, the, the political landscape, is in any way in the West, or in you know in in you know Eastern Europe, let's say, anywhere mappable onto what it was in the mid-century, for instance. I mean, I don't think I think these issues of ident- identity politics is one thing. You know, uh, before the '60s, women and minorities had much less less of a voice in politics. It really was driven, you know, primarily by you know white male interests. And the same, uh, you know, uh, mid-century economic and geopolitical just, struggles just aren't there. So I think. I think if we can reconstitute, you know, kind of socialism, it's not going to look the same as it did in the past. And alliances, you know, are going to be much more complex, for instance. I mean, and I think the kind of breakdown of the uh, post-Bernie left, you know, where you see guys like Dick Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy, and increasingly moving rightward, is kind of just one very, very small example of, you know, just how things aren't really predictable, you know, yeah. lately.
1: And I mean, I, like, like, I would not like i would sort of leave the question of whether michael or glenn have moved rightward substantively yeah. that's that's just a that's a different thing to me the yeah. perception the perception among leftists that they have moved rightward is in and of itself a sort of interesting thing right because um you know Glenn, you know Glenn still is uh, a guy who cares a lot about civil liberties and a lot about um anti-imperialism and about mistrust of authority and institutions and things like that and that has become coded leftist uh, or excuse me uh, right-leaning because of the sort of culture war that we're caught in and I mean I think I think there's a couple like I would say like there's two things that I would define as like reasons why uh I would be Pessimistic about the future and from a sort of a 10,000 feet. The, the first one is that um, is the culture war is just seems to be this all encompassing maw into which everything falls, everything ends up being uh, read through the lines of whatever the new, the current culture war is um it's inescapable everyone is expected to pick a side in it uh, at all times anyone who tries to chart an unusual path through that um is someone who tends to receive a great deal of social and professional um punishment for doing so um and there's our culture war that we have right now right um where you know Like, you know, so we didn't know that masking would be an issue three years ago. Right. Like no one could see that as being because no one knew what was happening. But it appears and now it's like this hot button, you know, fire red sort of culture war issue. Well, in another five years from now, maybe the pandemic's passed. We don't care about that anymore, but there'll be new things that we have. And so it's not to me. It's not just like this, the particulars of the, of the specific culture where we're in now, which is that everyone has to sort of uh, sort into two broad camps and that everything that you do is read through the lens of, those, of your position in those camps. And, you know, if you deviate, then you're going to be considered an outsider. Uh, it's just that, like, you know, is this a thing that's going to be happening all the time? I personally blame the Internet. Right. I mean, look, I, I I know all the reasons not to um, romanticize the past and I don't. But um, certainly I think culture war has been dramatically uh, exacerbated by online technologies. And the question is, is like, just can you have a functioning democracy this way, let alone socialism? Right. So like that's that's, reason, you know, big reason, number one, you know, for for being skeptical. Yeah, the I second mean- thing is, no, go, go for it. I mean, I guess what I was sort of saying, I, I'm personally a fan of Glenn Greenwald
0: and Michael Tracy, right. and um, I don't, I agree, I don't think they're a, a moving rightward in the old sense, it's just that alliance, because of the culture war, it's so deep, I think alliances are shifting very rapidly, and they are aligning with the right on some issues, and that does complicate, I think, however much you slice it, you know, your kind of cause of ecumenical, social, you know, kind of universalistic socialism. What I tend to think, though, is that I mean, I think the internet certainly plays a role in the cultural war. I think it's exacerbated a lot. I think we tend to overrate the extent to which, you know, the period, of, again, the mid-century period where you had, you know, a relatively unified press in the West, less of an emphasis on cultural issues, really, for the most part, the 1950s, you know, 1950s, um, you know um, kind of more of an attempt to uh, kind of streamline political discourse. I think that was a very, it was that was an aberration, you know, throughout history, basically, that was caused by... Very rapid economic growth that satisfied a lot of people, Um, a relatively unified and small elite that was, you know, somewhat non-democratic. And that pretty much went away in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And ever since then, Mm. the sort of emphasis on kind of micro identities um, has returned, basically, in politics. So, I mean, I think Mm. I'm somewhat skeptical that we can build a kind of ecumenical leftism,
1: you know, that surpasses these issues. I mean, the thing is, is like, look, like, I, you know, like I, I am a class first leftist, which is um, a term that's usually used as a term of derision. But like, you know, I always say like, class is first for a reason, which is that um, a gay person and a straight person can't share a sexual orientation. A black person and a white person can't share a race. Uh, a cisgender person and a trans person can't share a gender identity. Um, Men and women can't share a gender identity, et cetera. But what they can all share is if they're poor, they're poor. If they're working class and they have a shitty job and uh, their boss is sucking up all the profits and so they can't uh, be paid a living wage, then that's something that they can share. But the problem is, as you say, with micro identities, it's just like um, it's really hard to imagine the kind of broad-based solidarity that is necessary to make such a movement work. When the, you know, the internet is telling you every day, and unfortunately, the left-leaning people on the internet is telling you every day, no, you're not part of any collective. You are a perfectly unique flower uh, who, you know, has to be understood only through the, the, you know, the lens of your own individual life. So that's a big problem. But the yeah. other thing is, like, you know, like. Um, You have to give the devil his his due. You know, Marx, as I always say, um, was fascinated by capitalism and uh, felt that it was an incredible productive engine and never doubted, never uh, questioned its ability to uh, produce an immense amount of uh, productivity and wealth and value. His problem was how that was distributed. But um, we have to be clear that like uh, capitalism has made a lot of people rich. It's also made a lot of people terribly, terribly poor. And, you know, the basis of our moral critique and our political critique is the fact that there's no reason for people to be poor when some people are rich. Um, but we have reached a point where the material comforts that capitalism provides, whether that's video games, pornography, uh, Oxycontin, uh, you know, your flat screen TV, um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, uh, your cell phone just all these things that are just narcotizing and numbing. You know, these are things that um, cut against the desire to go a- out and create real, deep, meaningful change. And so you look at like. The, you know, 1917 Russia, um, a starving country, right, with a um, totally inept uh, at the beginning of the year, totally inept um, <clears throat> uh, monarchical government. Um, and a bunch of starving peasants who had just nothing, uh, starving peasants and uh, brutally exploited industrial workers who had nothing to lose, right? And the thing is, is this just like, um, can you produce, even setting aside like a violent revolution, which is like the potential for real lasting change, can that be produced when so many people in the, in this country have too much student loan debt and will never own a house and uh, suffer from anxiety and depression and uh, feel atomized uh, and disconnected from everyone around them uh, and ha- constantly have to worry about money, but they can come home and put on Netflix and smoke weed um, at, you know, for four hours. Um, is that a populace that has the capacity to get mad enough to come and change things?
0: That kind of segues very well. The next question I was gonna ask you which is really kind of, you know, kind of geeking out a little bit about Marx, basically. <laughs> so basically, I'm at, you, re- you wrote a pretty interesting essay on um, the relevance of Marx today. And what you're saying, I mean, it's a little complex, so I might not completely get it right. But I think what you're saying is basically, you're obviously still a Marxist. But you do think that, I mean, the kind of, you know, kind of rigidly Marxian approaches to socialism, they, you know, they alienated a lot of people, but also they potentially co-opted by just kind of milquetoast socialists who, you know, don't really care about a kind of systematic analysis, but care more about, you know, uh, uh, sort of socialism for moralistic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really seems to be a major contradiction, I think, in the, uh, you know, on the modern left, where people aren't really quite sure whether, um, you know, they're, uh, you know, they, they, they favor a systematic approach, like, for instance, I mean, one not super left wing book, like Thomas Piketty's Capital, you know, was a big bestseller. And, you know, people, mm. people wrote about that. that's an example of a pretty systematic approach, or whether they're more like AOC, and they just have a kind of simple moral aversion to, you know, people being poor, when they don't need to be, which is perfectly legitimate right. too, and you acknowledge that. But really, I, I do think one thing is you might kind of undersell those contradictions, like moralistic forms of socialism. I think this right. is one of the re- main reasons why, you know, Bizarrely, he wouldn't have thought so, but Marxism triumphed over, you know, think it was like Bakunin or Proudhon right. or, yeah. you know, is that moralistic forms of socialism are very easily uh, co-opted by even mm. conservative forces, right? I mean, mm. right. there's, you know, there isn't a huge difference on a moral level between, you know, the claim that, you know, people have a responsibility to help the poor than kind of right-wing, you know, Andrew, Andrew Car- Carnegie, Type philanthropy really just the difference of government which is a kind of systematic factor so right. i mean how do you how do you really um what is the place of systematic analyses on the left today because they're not as popular and how do we revive a kind of you know that kind of systematic approach to marx because thinkers like ga cohen have kind of uh, kind of kind of kind of weakened that that approach
1: yeah so i i have a piece that i've been sort of poking away at for a long time i'm not sure if i'll ever publish it but um the basic argument is just that um, socialism has too many popularizers, right? In other words, um, if you imagine a healthy uh, political tendency or movement, um, it needs its theorists, right? It needs people to be thinking about uh, what is uh, what you know what the movement is what its goals are what you know the more abstract and technical questions of politics and it needs its activists right he's people who goes out there and does uh sort of and rallies people for the cause and and spreads information uh you need uh frankly technocrats or even bureaucrats right you need people who like Um, keep the lights on and do the sort of the scut work, the dirty work of like making things happen. Uh, And then you also need popularizers. You need people who take what the theorists do and you explain it to uh, uh, others uh, in a way that is both more simple so that they can absorb it and attractive to others. The problem with socialism right now is, um, it is a movement only of popularizers. I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration, but like everyone is trying to popularize socialism. The problem is there is no thing to be popularized, right? Like to popularize a movement requires there to be like a movement to exist, right? And so right now, um, you know, people always think I'm taking swipes at particular people like... Um, Bread the, uh Yeah, BreadTube or the... Um, Who's the, 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 the Twitch guy, you know? Oh, um, yeah. Hassan Piker. Hassan Piker or the, or the Chopper House uh, podcast or that whole world. But it, I'm not like I – don't, I don't have any problem with any individual set of people who are working in the realm of um, popularizing. The problem mm. is, is just that, like, you know, everybody can't be a popularizer. Marxism is a set of pr- profoundly technical economic theories, right? Um, it is boring. Anyone who tells you that they're reading Capital and it's exciting is fucking full of shit. OK, I've read Capital One and Two, never read Three. Um, <clears throat> I've read Capital One and Two, and it's boring because it's a it's an economics textbook is what it is. Right. Um, there's a lot of math in Marxism. Right. Like math is a big part of the tradition. Um, it was dispassionate and it is, in fact, you want to be careful how I say this. There are certainly moral elements to Marxism, but Marxism is never but was never a moralizing discourse right i mean the whole The whole thing about the rate of exploitation were in fact you know the um the inevitability of the revolution was that Marx was speaking, uh, he felt, empirically, right, and not normatively, right? He He thought that he was saying something that was true rather than something that was good, right? In other words, not it would be good if the revolution happened, but rather he felt that the revolution was inevitable because of the fundamental contradictions of capitalism. I don't think as I said in that piece, that it makes a ton of sense to try to push marks on like if you meet some 18 year old and they are very passionate, but they don't really have a political identity yet. And they say, well, where, where do I go with all this? I, I don't, I just don't see the value in like saying, okay, first you read critique at the Gotha program. Right. And then I want you to read the Gundrysta, and that, like, that's just not like, you're not doing that human being a favor even as a socialist, right? If it becomes useful to them in the future to read Marx, they'll do it. However, we do need some sort of like theory because you said like AOC who, um, you know, I I will never in my life could could I imagine a more elegant distillation of the sort of incoherence of of the contemporary left than going to the Met Gala, but having your dress say tax the rich, right? And it's like a really it's, it's just, you know, the whole thing with social with socialism right now is people want to have their cake and eat it, too, which is um, most socialists are college educated people in the United States right now. OK, um, that is not disqualifying. I fucking have a Ph.D., right? I'm not saying it's disqualifying. And it's, in fact, very common for, you know, for radical movements. To have an element of um, uh, like you know they say like an intellectual vanguard, whatever that's not my problem. My problem is is that the, there are these people who come up through meritocracy they have a critique of meritocracy, but they they have that critique even as they go through the motions of the meritocracy and receive the reward of the meritocracy. And they can't quite stop themselves from going through those paces while they're in the process of saying, but we need socialism instead, right? Um, There's got to be a step back to say, okay, is this all a wing of the democratic party, right? Can we possibly achieve any of the things that we want through trying to push the Democrats left, which, of course, is been a siren song for a long, long time and a failed one. Right. If it's not the Democratic Party, is it a third party? Is it an alternative to partisan politics at all? We can ask the question, is it a armed revolution? I can tell you. Guess what? That's not going to work because they got all the guns. But um, there should be a step back to sort of say, what are we? What are our immediate goals? Are we actually an anti-capitalist? you know, th- movement, because a lot of people have anti-capitalist trappings, but when you ask them what they want, it's just sort of like left liberal social democracy, which is fine, but if that's not anti-capitalist, right? So um, we just don't, there's just, there's there's not the base of people defining what uh, all this is meant to be in order to create the the something that could then be popularized by people, Everybody wants to have the snarky Twitter account. Everybody wants to be the, the podcaster making a lot of money. Everybody wants to play Twitch or be on YouTube, and that's a problem. What I kind of wanted to ask you in relation to that is, you recently wrote a, wrote a piece, um,
0: basically um, advocating for, a, you know, kind of for a, a pretty sympathetic take to David Shore style, you know, populism, which for people who don't know. You know, it's basically the idea that uh, politicians, political elites, you know, uh, or in a most sense, kind of the vanguard. I think, believe David Shore is actually an, uh, has gone on the record as an adherent of vanguard theory. Um, but that should make uh, kind of pragmatic concessions um, in way, and essentially say what's popular in order to achieve uh, incrementally more left wing goals. And I'm a big fan of Shore. I had him on, on the podcast. Actually, he was my last guest. Um, but I guess I do have, I mean, I guess some kind of objections to the idea that of Shor- popularism really is deeply compatible with the goals of the left, and I'm curious to see, you know, what you'd think of them um, so basically, I mean, so my view essentially is that um, you know, I think Shorism is sort of based on, you know, the, the basic polling stuff, that's what David Shorism is a pollster, you know, is very, very, very good I mean, you know But I think a lot of the broader theoretical assumptions he makes uh, makes it seem like kind of oversells um, the extent to which this kind of incrementalist approach leftwards
1: really is possible. Uh, Yeah, I I would just say, like, again, like, I mean, I think uh, for your listeners, I I, I guess maybe the most basic point of that piece is just that, like, um, I am resentful of the idea that the concept of appealing to voters with popular stuff is, like, a nameable thing called popularism, and it is sort of aligned inherently with sort of like, you know, center left Democrat politics. In other words, like um, everybody has always had to uh, appeal to, uh, you know, uh, the sort of fundamental, like what the voters want things. Uh, the Bolsheviks are a perfect example, right? Well, you know, we're gonna feed you and we're gonna get your sons out of World War One, right? They yeah. said, hey, look, we're, you know, we're going to pull
0: bread.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Peace, land, bread. Right. Like, we're, you know, we're going to we're going to take care of the stuff that really affects you. That's you know, popularism. Right. So, uh, look, the the critique that makes the most sense to me is something on the lines of like, look, like. Um, we're we're not in step with most of the voters. Right. Um, we want things that the voters uh, might recoil at. They don't like the word socialism for the record. If people want to rebrand socialism i'm on board you know i'm not married to the name uh so you know how can we how can we remain true to our beliefs and uh while uh you know trying to do this popularist sort of dance so my response to that would be to say like look like um i you know it's a question of like what issues for in what context at what time right okay so you know, whether or not the the slogan defund the police um, was electorally painful for the Democrats and helped to sort of fuel a rightward movement in some places. I think, you know, everybody's gonna sort of take the evidence in whatever way suits their priors. But I do think that like just, it's a shitty, stupid slogan that um, was not connected to anything like a coherent vision of what comes next. Um, And so like if it's popularist to oppose that, then, yeah, I oppose that because like it doesn't make sense. Number one, it's wrong on the merits. But also, yes, it is sort of like um, it seems almost custom made to make a lot of people run in the opposite direction. Right. I would like to emphasize the elements of socialism that can appeal to the broadest base possible. Right. Everybody's got a boss. And everybody's boss sucks. Everybody is struggling to pay the rent or the mortgage, right? Um, we have the potential for a really broad base of a coalition, but that can only be work if we're not dividing the coalition up into the smallest chunks we possibly can and saying this chunk is more important than that chunk, right? Like um, people have a visceral reaction, a visceral negative reaction to the idea that they problems aren't problems or are less important than other people's problems right and the basis of all left organizing is to say you're one of us your problems are our problems and so get in the in the tent with us whereas you know the sort of uh whatever you want to call them politics that are coming out of universities now is just is a hierarchy of suffering. The people who suffer more deserve more, and anyone who's like a white uh, person, for example, is someone who doesn't matter and who should just shut up and you know let the the next age uh, happen. And like that's just always going to be a loser. So like for me, popularism is about like f- stressing the fundamental aspect of socialism that appeals to everyone, rather than getting bogged down in um, these ver- versions of identity politics that cannot stop dividing people into smaller and smaller chunks.
0: I agree completely. I mean, I agree with, I'm basically in the new term, I'm basically on board with pretty much all of Shor's prescriptions. My issue is more that people who really, some people who really aren't socialist, you know, Shor is also quite popular among, you know, centrist, center-right types, you know, take popularism and they may use it as a vehicle to actually diminish socialist ends. I mean, and one kind of, almost is kind of getting a little wonky, but... um one kind of political science example is I actually read recently a paper by a professor at McGill University about why, why the U S has no, you know, left wing, no, it doesn't have a labor party, essentially, you know, like here in um, in Canada, you know, we have the NDP. Um, And uh, he basically argued that actually one of the reasons was, um, you know, basically like the FDR type left basically became, you know, 1930s, just kind of a really big tent and absorbed, any even even you know socialist types really so i think there is i mean i you know whatever you think of that 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 thesis um i think there are basically real dangers to the kind of uh coherence of left-wing causes uh you know of you know taking an overly you know electoralist approach basically and i also think there are real dangers in you know the kind of a sort of kind of i think he makes a subtle assumption you know almost like a you know the arc of history bends towards justice kind of thing i mean one of the kind of imp- big empirical claims of tourism um, is the idea that um elites tend to generally be more less than the populace, and elite movements tend to be more liberal and open-minded not letting mm-hmm. this liberals a bit a way of phrasing it i don't know that that's really true if you look at history very broadly one objection i think uh, richard Hanania made was the taliban you know is an elite movement a very right way so i, mean, I think I think the idea that, you know, elites are more open-minded and they just need to make pragmatic concessions, that's almost like a kind of a, there's a kind of end of history kind of twinge to that, that, you know, all we need to do is, you know, be incrementalist because progress is coming a little bit. And I just disagree with that, although I'm fully on board with most of what tourism says. And obviously, I think the academia, you know, is largely out of touch. Yeah, basically, I agree with, you know, all the reasons you're pushing for supporting, you know, at least a kind of uh, basic form of popularism. Um, One of the things you're kind of most well-known for is you're a pretty radical critic of meritocracy in America. Mm. Um, now, there are two critiques of meritocracy, I think. There's a kind of aspirational objection to meritocracy. You know, the idea that our meritocracy, you know, it could work better if we, you know, uh, if it was, you know, for alternate reasons, more rigorous or more compassionate or, you know, uh, more just in some way or even maybe a little more compressed, you know, maybe we wouldn't have to have, you know, uh, surgeons, you know, making 500K, you know, we could compress, could have more of a compressed kind of hierarchy of achievement. Um, That's kind of an aspirational critique. And then there's a very, very radical critique of meritocracy, you know, which is what I attribute to you, which is really that someone's uh, worth shouldn't come from uh, what they can contribute in terms of doing a job or making a wage in society. And I just wanted to hear kind of like flesh out your position because I rarely hear that. It's a very bold critique.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think that part of the thing is that like um, many times when people are critiquing meritocracy, they want to trouble or be mysterious towards or wave away, you know, differences, like real differences in human capital. Mm -hmm. And the thing about my book and my whole spiel here is that it actually assumes, no, actually some people are better at some things than other people are. Right, yeah, and the degree to which people will go along with that statement depends entirely on context and circumstance of what you're talking about, right? Um, few people will disagree with me that like I never had a chance to play basketball like LeBron James. Okay, like that was that was not a, a, ever in the cards for me, right? So I could never be rewarded the way that LeBron, LeBron James was rewarded in that particular domain, right? Um, it gets much more complicated when we talk about like being smart, right? Um, the fact that some people are smarter than others is something that would be a completely mundane thing to say for thousands of years of human history, um, but it has become very unpopular now because, you know, it just gives people the willies in a certain sense. But um, I'm perfectly happy to say that there's people in the world who are smarter than me and people in the world that I'm smarter than. Um, I could never have been a research physicist. It doesn't yeah, matter I mean, how much. Yeah. It doesn't matter how long I studied. It doesn't matter how early I started. It wouldn't. It, it doesn't matter. My brain is not meant to do that, Right. Once you accept that kind of difference in human capital, right, then you can start to say, okay, um, if I understand that different people have different uh, levels of ability in different skills and that the what we reward, the skills we reward, the the, the attributes we reward in society um, are fairly arbitrary or at least are arbitrarily relative to the population. In other words, you don't get to choose what you're good at. And you don't get to choose what the society values, right, then you can start to tear apart the idea that, um, you know, what you can contribute to society should uh, be the value of you as a human being and should determine how much you get back. So, for example, you know, examples all, all the time, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago, um, you are the biggest oaf in your village, right? You're a big, strong, strapping guy, and during times of peace, everybody likes you because you're the best hunter and you can dig ditches the fastest. And then when it's wartime, you can go out and you can club somebody over the head and kill them, and you can be the best warrior. And so your reward, right, is uh, you know your whatever the whatever your village is capable of rewarding you with. Maybe you're the chief or whatever. You know you receive reward for that. But if you take that exact same human and you bring them to twenty the 21st century. Um, and you say, you know, what are you good at? But you have no intellectual skills. You have no human capital in the way that we think of it now. You're just a big guy who can move stuff around and is strong. Um, and you can't fight hand-to-hand anymore because, you know, real fights are waged with guns now. Soldiers have guns. Um, and most of the things that you used to do as a laborer by carrying things around are now done by a machine. Your value has now radically changed, even though nothing has changed about you, Right. Um, once you acknowledge that, right, it, or, but it also you can flip it the other way, right? Somebody is born with an absolutely brilliant mind that is perfectly designed to be the best computer scientist in the history of the world, but he's born in 2000 BC, right? That, the, the, he will never capture that value, right? That abstract potential for value, if he had been born 4,000 years later, is just useless to him. Right. So if once we acknowledge that once we see sort of that there's an arbitrary element to the skills that you have and also how they fit into the society at the time, um, it undermines the whole sort of moral foundation of meritocracy. But more importantly, for me, it undermines like the social contract. Right. In other words, like I'm a big believer that like, you know, human beings, you know, no society has ever had enough cops or enough soldiers to really sort of keep absolutely everyone in line at the same time. right? Even the most authoritarian states can rely on the fact that most people are not gonna revolt in any given time, right? Um, There's just too many people to be able to do that, but they don't need to do that because most people buy into the social contract. They buy into the idea that if I work hard, then I can get this reward and the system seems fair to me, right? Um, Once you start to look at the fact that um, there's plenty of people out there in the world who might have all sorts of things that are good about them they might be curious they might be uh kind they might be uh have uh, a lot of resolve uh elastic intuitiveness um, they might be compassionate they might be all sorts of things but if they those things don't happen to align with what the market is rewarding now right then they've been jobbed right they've they've been duped by Uh, their political system and economic system and by their genetics. And so once you acknowledge that, then you start to say, "Okay, why am I taking part in this society at all, actually? And over a long enough time period, if people feel that the system that they're in is not providing them with a good deal or a fair shake, um, I think you can have long-term political unrest.
0: I I mean, I I basically agree with, you know, most of that. I think that, um, I think the one thing, I mean, Peter Turchin, you know, a professor at the University of Connecticut, He's argued that elite overproduction is one of the most pressing issues of our time. You know, too many elites, can't possibly fill the top positions, so, you know, they, uh, they you know, create, you know, a kind of discontent, really. And he, you know, certainly you can see this phenomenon in other historically volatile periods. Um, what I kind of, I guess I'm slightly confused by is what I would support is a kind of compression, you know, a kind of moderate, you know, approach where you kind of compress the meritocracy, where you say, you know what, you um, the work of, you know, a medical doctor, it might be incrementally, you know, worth somewhat more to society than, say, the work of, you know, a tool and die worker. But it, should they really be, you know, making 10 times as much? That's not quite fair. What I sort mm-hmm. of disagree with a little bit is um you seem to kind of reject the idea that uh, talent or the kind of measurable contributions really do kind of, you know, that that kind of approach to meritocracy where you just say, you know okay well you, you basically kind of do away with the idea of someone's worth to society in terms of what they produce overall which i think i mean i think in itself and like just my personal view kind of puts the social contract and even even kind of vaguely marxist theories on a somewhat difficult footing basically mm. because you know for the, for the former i mean you know um if you have uh, you know no standard of comparison basically you know, how do you really do, you know, the kind of Rawlsian veil veil of justice? I mean, how would I want to be true? It becomes more difficult. Even Marxism, you know, is based, you know, in some sense on the proposition that, you know, basically, you know, on a kind of emphasis on, you know, labor, you know, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder how you really, like, how do you, it's not that I, I disagree, really. It's more like, how do you create a vision society where direct measures of merit just don't play as much of a role in kind of our social order?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first thing is that just like um, I'm not worried that, uh, you know, I sometimes get reactions to the book. Well, look, like if you divide merit, you know, ability from reward, then people aren't going to be motivated to do stuff anymore. Right. Um, and I have a couple of responses to that. The first is just like I think that that's just not uh, in keeping with human nature. So if you look at the internet, right. Um, the internet is full of people doing spending an immense amount of labor to do things that nets them no financial reward at all. Right. Yeah. Like, um, you know, and it's not just, the, the, the thing is, to understand is like, it's not just like, like, yes, you know, people, you know, uh, dick around and, and tweet and stuff for free. Um, but also like, you know, I was once on a, on a, a message board and some guy, uh, was talking about how he was trying to build a, uh, a treehouse for his kid. And he was having a really hard time of it because the, the branches weren't in an advantageous way. And this guy who was a professional architect, I think, or con- con- contractor or something, um, a few days later was like, he just gave him all these CAD diagrams of an, like a really amazing treehouse that he could build. And this is a guy who did that for a living, and in his off time, for no money, he did that. Right? I think that human beings are productive by nature it's just that what we define as productive in capitalist terms does not always sort of fit like where our instincts lie one of the things that happens in a sort of you know post-work economy if that makes any sense you know once you free people from the shackles of having to provide for their basic material needs through work is you unleash productivity right people who could be doing so much better at something else don't have to come home and are absolutely exhausted from another 40 hour week at work. It's they can't unleash their productivity. That's one thing. But the other thing is just, I'm just not afraid that like things aren't going to go well for the people who can provide a lot of value. Right. Like a lot of the actual prescriptions in my book do amount to just shrinking the meritocracy. Right. Um, My ideal sort of critique of it is more radical than that. Um, But like, people who can do things that are considered financially valuable are always going to um, capture that value to one degree or another. Right. In other words, like there's just very little reason to worry that somehow we're going to so sever the relationship between uh, talent and uh, payment that um, people are going to be like, Oh, well, then I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to screw around and sit at home. I just don't think that that's a, pr- a particularly a big problem because like, look, like this again gets back to Marx. You know, I I say this all the time. I might as well say it on your podcast too, is, you know, Marxism has nothing to do with equality, right? Like that was never the goal of Marx or Engels or any of them. It's never been a political goal of Marxism. Equality is a false god, right? Um, In a Marxist society, I think this is really important to say, in a communist society, a fully communist society, there would be lots of summative inequality, right because inequality is written to our genes what there wouldn't be is labor exploitation right so we don't have to worry that like there's not going to be any reward for merit for talent for ability but what we do want to do is we want to say put a, put our, our flag down and say you know your ability to satisfy what the market values right now which 100 years ago might be a lot different or 100 years from now might be a lot different that is not the sum total of your, your uh, status as a human being.
0: That is a really, really just bold uh, critique. You know, the idea that most people you know do these eight-hour jobs and this kind of wage labor is you know a, a pretty modern construct, actually. I mean, especially you know in the pre-nineteenth century, you know, there were plenty. The standard among you know aristocratic elites, the top ten or fifteen percent of the population, you know, work was considered. They were averse to work, regimented labor you know, they were averse to that. So I do think Marx, you know, was influenced by Aristotle, basically. Who You write about that, kind of, you touch on, you know, the role of kind of a radical critique of meritocracy as a means to kind of uh, reinvigorate the idea of the good life. People should be able to live, you know, the good life, the best life, that kind of uh, where they can use whatever capacities they have to the fullest extent, not be shackled by, you know, a nine to five job or something. I think that's really essential. But we have to, to really understand, you know, how that can work. We have to look towards not the future, really, but even the, to the, you know, to the pre-capitalist era. I mean, some people contend that Marx was essentially working on, you know, this kind of aristocratic principle, kind of principle of free, freedom as kind of non-domination. Essentially, I think it, I think it kind of bring, necessarily leads to, you know, endorsing that kind of radical critique of the meritocracy for it to uh, hang together. And you do this. You have to kind of endorse a very libertarian conception of what Marx meant. I mean, the idea that you know, uh, I mean, the idea of worth, worth or economic worth is really, you know, the idea that people have intrinsic capacities. You know, that can be can be uh, kind of an emancipatory idea of you know what people's worth is. You know, again, you, you stress this. You know, worth in you know in little things we do for free in you know, uh, um, uh, learning on our own, you know, for, without any pay. But I think the modern kind of capital like modern idea of just economic worth, which a lot of even Marxists work off of, you know, is insufficient for building this kind of, uh, you know, radical critique of meritocracy. And that's kind of where I'll kind of segue to my next question. Because I think, um, I think one of my favorite things about your commentary is you're, you know, you're a, you're a pretty strongly libertarian Marxist. Do You believe in a Marxist, believes in freedom, but not necessarily, you know, equality, which is pretty, pretty revolutionary. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of what people think of Marx. But um, so you've written, I think, some pieces that sort of relate to that. You have a pretty interesting article on the merits and weaknesses of Joe Rogan, essentially. Um, And you argue, I mean, essentially that um, Joe Rogan's open mindedness, you know, kind of um, kind of libertarian worldview is intrinsically pretty admirable. On the other hand you say that joe rogan's guests skew right and that creates a sort of bubble and that rogan doesn't really you know he's not really interested in the distinction between truth and bullshit you know on a deep level and right. so i guess the question is and this kind of dovetails with the idea of you know building you know your sort of uh libertarian vision of socialism is how do we build a social order actually build a social order that emphasizes true freedom of speech and expression Rather than just debating over where the boundaries of acceptable discourse lie, I mean, how do we be, how can we be accepting of free speech in a truly
1: radical way? Well, the, I mean, I can answer. That's a very easy question to answer. I don't know is that is the answer to that question um let I me mean, let me wander around it anyway um so the thing with rogan i mean i would just say it's like you know it's it's, it's an old cliche but i think like he really does appear to be the guy whose mind is so open his brain fell out i think that i think that there's you know i watch it and i i can't help but like him i think that he's a really he has in a certain set way he's very very bright um he really does seem to have a a true commitment to Open inquiry and getting a lot of opinions and to fighting and stuff, but I agree with those who say that like um, his beliefs are the beliefs of whoever he was last talking to, right? In other words, like just that people can just sort of impose these things on him. So like this this vaccine shit, where um, he's not like an out and out anti vaxxer but he keeps having on his show um, anti-vax people, and then he gives them a perfectly sort of sympathetic sort of forum in which to play in, and it's like. like ivermectin or whatever and at some point like i don't think talking about ivermectin should be banned and the fact that it was like banned from twitter and youtube or whatever is insane um but also ivermectin doesn't fucking work right and like at some point you have to look at the studies that are out there study after study after study finding no positive benefit from ivermectin uh, in fighting covid19 and so it's like your mind can't just be open, right? It has to be open, but also filled with information that develops natural tendencies and skepticisms. And that would be my critique of him. Um, look, uh, I think the first thing to say is that whenever I talk about these issues, um, freedom of speech is insanely popular. Okay, like you can—they do, do polling on this stuff. Freedom of speech is more popular than any politician in the country. It's more popular than uh, than uh, Joe Biden. It's more popular than Congress. Uh, it's more popular than the Democrats or the Republicans, right? Um, Freedom of speech is a cherished principle. And like the fact that there's a uh, sort of a cadre of people who have convinced themselves that it'll be to their best interest if they just say, "Eh, eh," you know, free speech, I think, I think it was madness. Um, You know, Marx did not sort of famously or notoriously did not really define a post-revolutionary system. Right. Um, You know, uh I would, you know, the thing I used to say is when I was younger is I would always get into arguments with people like, you know, they would all be sort of statist Marxists. And I would always say, you know, Marxism, you know, communism is an anti-statist uh, system. Uh, and uh, they would get very mad. But uh, it's true that, the, you know, the, the as, as far as Marx was clear about anything, um, you know, the state does not exist following the revolution because the state is counter-revolutionary. Um, but then again, like, I don't say that as much anymore, like, you know, keep the commune and communism is a thing that you always say because it's just he's just not very clear about what the next stage is. And according to some people, you know, he was that was intentional because he was sort of trying to say, like, that he didn't know what the next stage was. Um So it's hard for any of us to sort of operate inside of this system and sort of say, okay, this is what the next order looks like. I do think that, um, you know, part of the concept of the commune as it's typically defined is like, you know, the way that I would define it, the way that my ideal society looks like is, you know, semi-autonomous bands uh, with uh, perfect uh, right to exit at any time, so anyone can enter or leave one of these semi-autonomous groups, communities um, that operate based on the principle of from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, uh, and that uh, respect the rights uh, of everyone. Um, I just think that miniaturism is probably not possible given the contours of the of the world and the population of Earth as it stands, but. Um, I don't know that you can have a society like the kind of society that I want and be rubbing your brain against the brain of millions of other people all, all day, every day. Right. I mean, if the internet has convinced me of anything, it's that I can't be happy if my, my, my society, my, my community um, is coterminous with the internet. Right. If it, if it is similar to the internet in the sense that everyone is around all the time. And I think that one of the things that like we would be well advised to do is consider like, Maybe it's not crazy to say, hey, you know what? We can't get along. Let's break out into different groups. Everybody has an absolute right to go into whatever group they want. They can leave one and go to the other at any time. Um, within those groups, they'll democratically decide what the deal is. Um, and different people can live different kinds of lives. And so if you're someone who needs a sense of safety, a personal safety, and is scared of offense and of, uh, hearing a slur or whatever, then you go to a group that has very strict rules on speech. But if the person there feels they're being oppressed, all they have to do is walk away and go to the next one. Um, obviously that's not a very realistic answer for you, but it's yeah. the only what kind of answer that I can imagine that would satisfy my various political impulses.
0: I think uh, it's really, really interesting that free speech has become such a partisan concern you know, for some, some claim pretense to free speech. I don't think Republicans have any more respect for free speech than the left. <laughs> I think that, um, you yeah, but the idea of free speech has become, you know, a very partisan concern. I mean, you see that with people like Rogan who don't have, you know, woke people per se, you know, as guests, you know, very often at all, but they claim to, you know, have, take the mantle of freedom of expression and all these kinds of liberal values. I mean, so what I kind of think, you know, that phenomenon, you know, is sort of, you know, what kind of causes that phenomenon is basically, I mean, there was a piece, I think, in unheard, um, that kind of similar to my opinion, is that um, basically, you know, between, say, the 1960s and the, maybe early 2010s, you really had a liberal establishment, you know, a moderate liberal establishment and a right-wing establishment. They were both, both respectable and they coexisted to some extent. And so we had some kind of, you know, obviously false conception of this you know, very open society with, you know, kind of incorporated both perspectives. And of course, you know, far right paleocon were kept out and as well as, you know, more people like you politically, you know, Marx, you know, so uh, democratic socialists, you know, but it felt kind of free and it felt, you know, it felt like there was an avenue for open expression. And then what basically happened was the right wing basically fell out of the intellectual establishment, really. The intellectual establishment is pretty, you know, hegemonically liberal leaning, And so that created a sense of uh, kind of real repression, even if it didn't necessarily, even if just the Overton window shifted leftwards. So I think kind of a concern in your writing I see is how do we actually build, you know, space for, how do we make sure that, you know, we have a truly broad idea of free speech and it's not just, you know, basically some artificial kind of uh, boundaries acceptable discourse kept in place by whatever political elites, you know, we have. I think that, you know, Late tens kind of free speech crisis is really a breakdown of that kind of facade of elite consensus, Um, not really a breakdown of free speech per se. And I think, I mean, I think I agree with you that you know the answer, the only real answer, you know, has to be this kind of uh, almost syndicalist view of the world, even which people have the freedom to say what they want within a set community with those rules, but also have the freedom to leave at any point. And I mean, the question I think is. You know, how do we build that kind of radical conception of, you know, of uh, freedom of speech? How do we build that to the maximal
1: extent within our society? I mean, I, I you know, I don't have a governmental solution to this. Yeah. Um, I think that young people have to be informed that the world is a really brutal place and that nothing can ever change that. Right. And it's just like um, we appear to be raised. You know, I hate like the term snowflake or things like that or facts don't care about your feelings, all that shit. Like that stuff is designed to be insulting. That's not what I want. What I want is to say to these young people, look, um, every human being in the history of the world right, has lived with cruelty and brutality their entire life. Okay, that is, that is the human condition. Of course, we want to make things safer and happier and healthier for people when we can, but there is no running away from the problems that you're trying to run away from. Racism is real. You say it louder than anyone else. Right. If that's true, then you cannot hope to build such a bubble for yourself that you'll never experience it. Right. Like you, you can't do it. All of these attempts to shield young people from the reality of the world just makes them susceptible to it when it inevitably hits them in the face. It's just really, really hard to get through to people that, like, uh, you're not helping people, you're not helping young people. Um, by making them believe that there's always some authority figure they can go to. If it's mom or the teacher or the college administrator or the HR department at work, there's always some authority that's going to come and rescue them from whatever makes them feel sad or uncomfortable. And that doesn't exist.
0: And that's something that's really, that's something that's, oh, sorry. Yeah.
1: No, no, go for it. That's something that's really sad, I think, about the left
0: today is that, you know, it's simultaneously based on the idea that you know authority figures you know you know are going to be wrong or screw things you know a real suspicion of authority but it's also simultaneously based on the idea that there has to be some kind of ever-expanding bureaucracy to cater to the needs of people you know who feel offended or you know need need special treatment or anything like that so i mean i think a lot one big issue on the, on the left is just a real ambivalence to do we need, you know, these kind of safe spaces to coddle people, basically? Do we need them to talk out from the top down? But at the same time, how can, you know, we need to also be, you know, skeptical of authority figures and stuff like that. And I'm not, that's not my, That that's not really a question I'm dealing with because I'm not on, a, on the left in that way, but I think that's something I see in left-wing circles.
1: And it's I mean, I don't. I don't know that the average Gen Z, yeah. you know, I mean, people in the Gen Z who think of themselves as radicals, who, like, are- Trying to embrace a radical tradition, I don't think they're anti-authoritarian at all. I think that, like, they don't even understand what the concept of a critique of authority because they've had these helicopter parents, and like, their entire <laughs> way of digesting the world has been through, you know, the presence of authority that, when uh, called upon, saves them from the next thing that's going to hurt them.
0: Well, I think, I mean, COVID pandemic restrictions, you know, I'm very pro-vax, so I'm not going to touch that issue. But, you know, um, like things like, you know, the prospect of, you know, indefinite masking or, you know, Canada, you know, curfews. We have a curfew, I think, in Quebec right now. I think that's sort of a real issue for liberals. I mean, I think Scott Alexander had a post on, uh, what's that movie, the COVID pandemic movie? Uh, um, Oh,
1: um Wait, is it, is it the, the comet one? Oh, that's, yeah. that's climate change. Don't look
0: up. Don't look up. Yeah. 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 Don't look up. I, yeah, I think that's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not deeply familiar with that movie, but he had a post on it, you know, arguing that liberals have, uh, you know, it shows kind of a, a very complex, like com- conception of authority and very, very ambivalent one among, among liberals. And I think that's kind of relevant to the treatment of the pandemic and, you know, masking and, and lockdowns, you know, where, um, Liberals, you made the point of the film, you know, liberals simultaneously want to mock authority figures, you know, and they have kind of an impulse to be kind of, uh, I was going to vaguely free speech type attitude. You know, they show in the movie authority figures, you know, being incompetent and all this stuff. And yet, you know, there's also a very fawning regard for expertise that people have. And with the pandemic, you know, that and the kind of safetyism stuff we talked talk about with free speech, you know, that all really comes together. I mean, I feel. Liberals aren't in the ideal position to sympathize with people who are sick of, you know, dealing with intermittent lockdowns with no end in sight, even though they should really,
1: as you know, as a kind of, kind of populist issue, really. I think that the pandemic has also revealed like just a really incoherent sort of within academia, Yeah. Um, a really incoherent attitude towards expertise because like they're they want they're all these egalitarians right who um who doesn't want you know who, who don't want anyone to sort of have like a hierarchy of any sort but if you say something that they think is wrong within their field of expertise they'll smack your hand immediately right it's like no hierarchies except for the one that puts me on top of this hierarchy of knowledge i
0: guess the final question final set of questions actually going to address and this is again Kind of a nice segue is, um, you know, your ideas about, well, I guess two things, education and then, uh, your book, The Cult of Smart, which I haven't read, but I've read short articles by you that kind of touch on the topic. But mainly, I guess what I want to talk about is, you know, just your views on education, basically. And so, I mean, I, I find, I mean, as a former, you know, high school student just graduated a couple of years ago, I find there's a lot of real misinformation about education in America, basically. You know, people, uh. People think that, you know, uh, for instance, uh, just spending more on education will fix these problems. Yeah, you know, I think that's a myth, basically, because some of the, as you've written, some of the, some of the lowest achieving school systems have
1: some of the highest per student budgets. And I mean, it's, just a, it's just a topic on which liberals feel compelled to or yeah. feel entitled to just make stuff up. Right. I mean, people, people will occasionally, you know, I still hear people say things like we're defunding education in this country. It's insane to say yeah. that. OK, eight cents out of every dollar spent on anything in this country are spent on public education. OK, like I, I you know, um, we we spend extravagantly in this country. We spend um, something like four times per student f- what Vietnam pays and Vietnam pays uh, uh, performs exactly as well. Just about exactly as well. Uh, international uh, competitions for students. Right. Right. Um, there's never been on a country level on a state level there's never been any on a district level there's never been any relationship between the amount of money spent on uh, spent per student uh and outcomes on any uh metric that you you could care to 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 name um and it's just like <clears throat> we've you know what i what i what i always annoys me about it is it's just like did you think no one thought of that? you know what I'm saying like is like is the is the assumption that nobody thought to say, wait a minute, what if we spend money on this, right? Like, um, it is. we should be so far past the point of simplistic, sloganeering sort of solutions to educational problems, but we just can't get out of them because they fit so neatly into uh, partisan frames. One thing that I, I just
0: never hear about, you know, the left, you know, any even the right, there's this kind of fiction that Americans are, you know, a laggard nation in terms of high school education or something like that. And, you know, that we're behind all these countries, underfunded schools, as you've said, but also, you know, terrible test scores. And when you break them down, controlling for poverty, we do better than, you know, we're at the very top of your Western, you know, compared to Western European countries.
1: We're not, we're not a best case education. We're not. Um, Our median student does pretty well. No, yeah. Not great, but pretty well. Um, our top 10% can compete with anyone in the yeah. world. You, you take the top 10% of American students, they, they can compete academically with anyone in the world. We have an unusual scenario in which we have a numerically pretty small group of students at the bottom who perform so terribly that they drag all of our averages down. The uncomfortable thing uh, is that, um, you know, uh, you some, some people have said, well, let's just go race by race, right? So race ends up being such a powerful variable in so many different elements of of education and so you go say okay how do white students in america do compared to white students elsewhere and it turns out that white students in america compete uh right up there with the very best maybe like finland does a little bit better than our white students yeah that's what i've seen uh, yeah compare compare uh asian students now the, the chinese data is um China plays all kinds of, uh, of tricks with uh, with their data. For a long time, they would only release educational data for students in Shanghai um, or Beijing, which is those are like the um, you know super rich uh, cities, uh, with, you know, filled with professionals and you know professionals' children. But um, our our Asian students outperform every Asian country, right? So if, if you if you want to talk about like oh the you know this these incredible Korean school system. Korean American students dramatically outperform, well, not dramatically, but Korean American students outperform Korean students in Korea. Um, there's not a lot of data uh, for Black uh, students because um, very few, a majority Black uh, countries participate in the PISA, but in places like Trinidad and Tobago is one of the the comparison countries, our, our African American students blow them out of the water, right? So, um, and and the same with, you know, quote unquote Hispanic students, um, places like Argentina, Ecuador, ours are better. So, um you know, it is just. There's just. It's very difficult, right, to look at uh, the scenario that we're in and say our education system just sucks. But there's people who are very invested in saying that it sucks from all all sort of different vectors in our society. Unfortunately,
0: part of it is also, a, you know, an attempt to deny the stark levels of inequality in this country. Really, I mean, mm-hmm. kind of brings up, you know. Your piece on on the SATs, you know how we should predict that underrepresented minorities, low SES students would do worse on the SAT because of the conditions they're dealing with, essentially. Right. And that any attempt to really just kind of window dress that issue is, you know, just really kind of uh, kind of weak, essentially. Um, Now that kind of brings me to my last, you know, kind of big topic. I have one kind of little question at the end, but big topic, which is the the ideas in your book, uh, "The Cult of Smart," basically. In your emphasis on you know kind of heredity, I mean, you you take a pretty hereditarian view. Um, there is kind of a danger in reifying kinds of uh, deeper you know you know kind, kinds of uh, you know inequalities that um, you know may not really be so real. For instance, and obviously to your, you know to your credit, obviously you don't you know you are very critical of any kind of you know like Charles Murray type racialism. Really, I mean, you get. Yeah. What I generally do think, though, is that um, and there's been a lot of research recently with the like uh, GWAS genome-wide association studies. You know, mm-hmm. which basically show that a lot of differences in educational level, you know, after you control for you know a lot of factors, it's actually much harder than you would think to you know find the influence of heredity. You can be like Eric Turkheimer, you know, on that. And so, regardless of what's true, basically, I mean, you have your, sort of your basic contention is uh, acknowledging that some people are less smart than others, you know, which we should do, um, you know, will lead to some kind of, uh, could lead to some kind of socialistic, you know, conception where people's worth is detached from, you know, their intellectual ability. But I mean, could it also lead to this kind of, at best, kind of Charles Murray type idea that, you know, there's, you know, there's an elite with some kind there's a you know, a kind of cognitive elite that has, some responsibility towards the average population, but ultimately has to kind of rule sort of, I mean, how do you avoid that, I guess? And given the risk of that is coming down really hard on genetic data that really isn't completely conclusive, really worth it. I mean, that's my question. I personally agree with you, you know, but that's one question.
1: So it's, so I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. So I, so I, I read and enjoyed and uh, um, a Paige Harden's book. Paige yeah, Harden is yeah, a, yeah. Uh, professor at the university of Texas Austin um, who wrote a book called the genetic lottery. And she talks a lot about these subjects. She's attempting to actually create like polygenic risk scores or polygenic scores, whatever, to sort of say, to be able to predict um, who will end up doing better in school. I, uh, th- that's not my own project. That's not sort of what I'm interested in. All I want to know is like, um, is it the fact that everyone's brain uh, is so uh perfectly equal to everyone else is that it has no impact on cognition or behavior, which seems crazy to me. Right. Like um, I think if you get, if you follow the thread down of what you have to believe to be a true blank Slater, right. You basically have to be like a Cartesian dualist, right. Like like you, like you have to genuinely believe that like the mind is some sort of numinous substance that exists independent of, uh, you know, physiology and I'm an atheist, right? Like um, our behaviors are the product of our brains and nervous systems and our brains, our nervous systems are tissues and their tissues, uh, as all tissues are, um, the blueprints that build them are DNA, right? And we don't all share the same DNA. It's just, it's very hard to imagine an outcome in which, Uh, we evolve such that everyone has the exact same potential for a behavior or for cognitive processing um, or for tendencies uh, that are useful or not in schooling. Um, I would remind you what I said earlier, which is that the fact that what is now valued by capitalism is what is valued is not written in the stars, right? Again, like the guy who could pick up a big rock is not like fundamentally less valuable than he was 2,000 years ago. It's just that the society around him has changed in such a way as to value different things, right? So um, <clears throat> my whole point is, you know, I t- here's, this is a story I tell in the book. I've told the story a lot. I was in, in at Purdue uh, getting my PhD, uh, and uh, I went to a cookout, um, I, I think with the second language uh, program, and someone was there. A um, bunch of grad students were there, um, and it was a guy getting his PhD from China, uh, I forget what discipline he was in, I might say in the book. Um, and uh, he was there with his wife and his two his two uh, sons, their two children. And uh, the mom was talking to another parent or whatever, and I was sort of milling around, the mom was bragging on the older son, and she was talking about how smart he is, and how he's getting such great, great grades, and he's in a robotics club, he's first in everything, he loves to read, et cetera, et cetera. And then the younger kid runs by and is just being kind of wacky or whatever. And she looks at him and she goes, he is maybe not so smart. Um, and uh, I kind of blanched, you know, uh, and so did other people there. Like I could tell other well, you know, white people, you know, from different cultural background. And I sort of thought, well, maybe it's like, a you know, English isn't her, her first language. Maybe it's a translation thing. But um, I, I chewed on it for a long time. If she had said instead, oh, he uh, – Uh, he's not going to be a great athlete, I wouldn't have cared, right? If she'd said uh, he he doesn't have an ear for music, that would have been fine. If she had said uh, he's not going to be that tall, right? Okay, whatever. But smart is different, right? And that's what I was trying to attack with the book. But because she said he's not so smart, I and other people around me sort of instinctively reacted as though she said that he had, like, some terrible disease, right? In other words, that, own, that smart alone is sort of taken to be your, the sum value of who you are as a human being. And my question is, why is that true? Why should it be any more insulting or any more uh, uh, threatening to say, not everyone can be as smart as everyone else, to also say, as to say, you know, um, not everyone can be as tall as everyone else, right? Or pretty or athletic, you know, or whatever, right? So uh, I just I, I what I would like to do is I would like to um, not just sort of stop trying to nail all these uh, square pegs into round holes and to make everyone into, a, you know, Stanford graduate uh, Google, uh, you know, uh, programmer. But to say to ask, you know, why have we in, in modern society developed the sense that being smart is the only criterion of value?
0: Well, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to our, you know, kind of uh, session on, you know, the meritocracy. And I think one way you kind of your approach, is, I think it's a really good way around this paradox is we tend to, you know, again, like I, we talked about before, we tend to fetishize expertise. But we also tend to have this idea, which isn't true, that, you know, everyone is equally smart and everyone can, equal, can contribute, you know, to some reasonable extent to, you know, some, uh, you know, some intellectual field, for instance. I think what you do basically is, you know is a good solution to that maybe we're not equally you know adepts, you know observers of politics or engineers or anything like that but we can build an equitable society by divorcing that idea
1: from worth. and i think one thing but, I it, just, but I, it's but it has to start the only way for it to work yeah. it has to start is to some degree to sever the relationship between how smart you are and whether or not you're going to sleep in a tent Okay, like that. There has to be the beginning of 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 dismantling smart as the only value that really matters is by cutting the line between if I'm not smart, then I'm going to end up in jail or on drugs or whatever. You know?
0: Yeah. And again, this is sort of going back to the you know Aristotle and Marx. I think Aristotle is one of the first great thinkers with this really idea that people need certain minimal, you know, in order to achieve something great according to, in order to live the good life, you know, the higher kind of intellectual life, people need, you know, life of the philosopher, people need basic, you know, things like food, you know, uh, sustenance, you know, in order to really achieve, you know, kind of virtuous potential. And I think that's basically where Marx is drawing from in a large part, you know, this idea that we all have as humans, we're endowed with productive capacity or worth of some sort, And we just need a baseline to achieve that. Um, But again, as we were talking, that ultimately, you know, involves assuming that basically everyone, you know, has some sort of worth, which is, you know, some sort of worth of capacity to do something creative with the world, some kind of genius in a certain way, which in a way, I mean, I think one thing which I kind of missed a little bit is I thought what you were saying a little bit was, you know, we should just make that kind of worth, you know, that idea of, talent kind of obsolete, but what you really seem to be saying is that we just need to do this as I agree with, we need to just accept that everyone has some kind of broad talent as some, you know, and some kind of ability to contribute It's just the fact of the human condition work from there, which is pretty, pretty self-evident.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: And my last question, this is kind of a funny one, but you recently w- wrote an essay that really clicked with me. Um, it was about how, you know, high school isn't as bad as everyone says. And that, you know, movies, they have, you know, like Mean Girls or something, you know, they have this kind of idea of high school as, you know, this really brutal place. People are awful to each other, people... You know, this kind of social, uh, you know, kind of Hobbesian world, you know? And you said that didn't click with you, it didn't click with me either. I mean, I had my high school experience, you know, I was not popular, um, but people generally treated me nicely and with genuine courtesy and people were respectful. So I guess... I mean, you have, you, you have a very, you have a much more positive view of you know mm. this kind of elemental phase of you know life, high you know high school, than most many, most people do. How does that shape your politics?
1: You know, so a commenter said something on that post that I thought was a really good point, which is that um, you know people are much more likely to go out into the world and write about their high school experience if it was a very intense experience. And for some people, it's a very intensely negative experience, whereas if you go through high school like I did where it's like mine wasn't, you know, it wasn't great. It's school. You hate school. Right. when you're in there, but it was just pleasant and fine, whatever. Like I wouldn't feel moved to do it. Right. In other words, it's like the intensity of the reaction of people who really hated it um, compels them to want to do to write these sort of things. Um, Yeah, no, I just think that like we should um, resist. I mean, I enjoy a good. Lord of the flies narrative for entertainment, but I think we should resist the constantly percolating idea that like absent, like strong, you know, control from above, people are sort of constantly at each other's throats and tearing each other apart. Where in fact, I think most people want to get along. The problem is, is that they are stuck in systems that compel them to think that they can only succeed if someone else fails. But I think that, yeah, I mean, my high school was very diverse and uh, a lot of different people, and sometimes people didn't get along, but mostly they did, and they just wanted to get their work done and treat each other nicely because that's how human beings operate, generally speaking. I think one thing that again is kind of a contradictory aspect of you know the attitudes
0: of American liberals is that um, they don't have the kind of faith in human nature, and if you don't if you don't have that kind of faith, that you know, without some kind of a you know strong authority or Leviathan. You know, people can mostly work things out. Then, I mean, it's very hard to actually create, you know, a kind of, you know, kind of a really robust form of liberalism. And you see that on the left. I mean, there's just this obsessive fear of, you know, um, ru- you know, rural people or you know, working class whites coming out of the woodwork and, you know, creating, you know, forming some kind of white supremacist movement, which feels overblown and you know is obviously, I think, based on a real kind of distrust and cynicism about human nature really and
1: agreed
0: yeah that's it for today wonderful having you on um i learned so much from you today
1: all right man thanks so much for having me i
0: appreciate it i had a good time i want to thank my guest freddie DeBoer, for coming on the show today thank you so much for taking the time to come on
1: you're very welcome thanks for having me this is blaze brosnan
0: for mir meets